Hello, welcome back. Another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast, and today I'm joined by Kalisa Ray, a poet, journalist, and educator based in Durham, North Carolina. After graduating from Queen's University MFA program, where she studied under the likes of Claudia Rankin and Ada Limon, she's written poetry and essays which have been published in a number of renowned journals such as Rust and Moth and Lit Hub. Chakar Press published her poetry chapbook, Real Girls Have Real Problems, in 2012, but it's Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat she's here to talk to me about, a new collection published by LA-based Red Hen Press. Let's start by talking about the title, because it is the title poem of the whole collection, isn't it? And it is a title that grabs you. Um, so I just wondered if we could start by talking about that, and particularly throats uh, and the body and the kind of significance of this. I get asked this a lot. Uh, the story is kind of cool, so I'd love to share it. I was actually a resident in New York at the famous Poets House. If you know anything about the Poets House, it's a famous library that just houses, you know, thousands upon thousands of amazing books, but the it's like the spiral staircase and they do residencies for writers to come and learn and study. And so I got awarded the opportunity to come and study under some phenomenal writers like Safia Ochilio, who actually became the editor of my book. And she said, today's prompt is you take a book and you find seven random words in one of the books on the shelves. And so I go up to the second floor and what do I find? I find the word ghost ancestor, girl, spirit, uh, and I think I saw throat. And it just so happens that I had already written this collection with no title, right? So this was my master's thesis and it didn't really have a title. And then I saw that and I read, wrote the poem and I said, oh my God, this is the title of my collection, Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat. Um, so it was serendipitous, it was fate, destiny that it was meant for, for me to have that title, I think. And, you know, the throat part comes from the fact that when I was in my master's program in 2016, I started having really bad panic attacks and learned that I have an autoimmune illness. And what happened was I couldn't swallow. There was something like going on with my throat. Um, and a yoga teacher, a friend of mine, told me that she felt like I had something like spiritually like lodged in my throat or I was afraid to say something. And she was right. That became the whole impetus for the entire book. The idea behind being a black woman in America and the, you know, the victim of violence and prejudice. Uh, I was afraid to say a lot and to talk about a lot of trauma as a child but also as an adult. And then, you know, when I got to college, I learned about the only successful coup d'etat that's ever happened in America, which is the Wilmington 1898 race riots um, and the race massacre that happened in my college town. And in the city, they say it's haunted because people are afraid to talk about the incident that happened. And so I was like, oh my goodness, everything is like coming together. This title is like, the perfect title for this collection because the throat and the ghost stuck there are everything we're afraid to talk about that's that's ugly that's so that's so interesting because it certainly the themes you talk about there and the psychosomatic elements of it the kind of could we call it a repressed kind of um traumas maybe but so that came after you'd have these ideas and it was kind of as you put the collection together yeah. I, I mean that's well that's 
spooky <laughs> to relate to the haunting <laughs> idea. Um, yeah. But yeah, it totally does. It re it, reading the collection, it does seem to talk about a voice unheard and a voice waiting to be unleashed. And this is toys out a lot, doesn't it? There's, there's a tension between voices that are heard and voices that are silenced. And there's a political element as well, isn't there? Well, I don't, yeah. perhaps it's not for me to call it political, but it also seems to relate to you finding your voice as a poet. It sounds a very kind of visceral sort of feeling, you know. Oh, of, yeah. So how, how, you know, how was poetry a way to sort of explore that? You know, for me, as someone who writes in a lot of different genres, I think that poetry is the perfect vehicle to explore finding your voice because poetry says what can't be said in normal language. It explores topics that otherwise wouldn't be understood. And I think that that's what's so special about poetry is it finds language for the unexplicable, right? Um, and it paints images of things that would otherwise be too hard to hear and look at. It paints images in a way that I think allows these truths that, as you say, that we don't want to talk about to be explored. You know, if you talk about the themes in my book, like um, sexual assault and violence against persons of color or uh, bigotry uh, against the queer community, those are things yeah. that folks have a hard time grappling with. And I think poetry is the perfect vehicle to shed light on that because there's this cool dichotomy that I say is like the beautiful and the broken, you know, the like murderous and the majestic, um, the terror and the tumbling hills. And what's cool, well, not necessarily cool, but what's interesting to look at is the South is that, you know, the South is this gorgeous place but this history of violence. And I think that same dichotomy is mirrored in poetry as well. Um, but you get a sense there is, it's a very vibrant collection as well. There's a lot of, there is a lot of beauty, but there is a lot of violence and there is a lot of cruelty mm -hmm. that you talk about as well. Because I learned today actually that you're, you weren't, uh, you're not from Durham, are you? You were born no. in, is it Indiana? I <laughs> yeah, I was I was born in Gary, Indiana, where Michael Jackson was born, uh, not oh, too far oh. away from his house. Yeah, so I'm not a Southern native. My ancestors are, but I'm not. I don't have any current family in the South, actually. So, and I realize the South is a very big area, big region. Um, the South is in your work and place names and cities, states. Can we talk a bit then about the influence of the South? its environment, perhaps other writers in the South that have had an influence on your work? You know, I always say that Toni Morrison, James Baldwin are huge influences on my work, right? Um, not just the current Southern names we know, uh, you know, in, in, in BIPOC, uh, Black and Indigenous voices, you know, Ada Limon and Jericho Brown, those big names that we know that I love, right? But the classics, you know, I really studied the classics, the Toni Morrison's, the Gwendolyn Brooks, the James Baldwin's, um, the Alice Walker's, their stories, because those really, to me, spoke in conversation with my book. You know, the South is a living, breathing thing in my book. It's it's a personality. It's a person, you know, uh, it's something that I love and hate as we talk about like this beautiful place that's gorgeous, always sunny, you know, these beautiful hills. And so I have this like love and hate relationship with the South because I'm a transplant here. You know, I, I came here for college. And so 
for me, the book really uses the South as a vehicle to talk about these topics, but really it's the story almost of like a young college girl that comes to college with trauma and then learns about this like horrific event that happens thinking that I was going to be, you know, having fun, living it up in college. And then smack dad in the middle of the town is this Confederate monument. And I was like, whoa, why is that here? You know, so for me, the it's not just a metaphor. The South literally is um, the vessel that I had to contend with that was like really difficult as a young person, like learning about the history of the South, because that's not something that we learned in our history books when I was in Indiana. Um, and so it was almost like a lifting a veil of the South of learning all, all about the things that the South was trying to hide, you know, the things that they, they hide in your history books. And so that's what it was for me. I really leaned on, you know, Tony and her work when, when trying to like paint the South correctly. Cause I think she does such a great job of that. Like in her famous books, Beloved, you know, in the blue, yeah, bluest eye. What's the kind of publishing landscape like for, um, I'm trying to get an idea of, obviously I'm based in the UK. What's the kind of publishing landscape like? Cause obviously we get a lot of fiction and poetry that comes over from the Northeast and centered within New York, New York publishing houses. It's very similar to what the problems we, you know, what we have over here, which is very London centric based publishing. Um, is there a, what kind of perhaps writing culture is it like then for you uh, working in the South? Is it more supportive in that respect? That's a really great question. You know what? I've been super blessed. So when I came to the South, I learned that the Southern community is not only huge, but I was super blessed to be in the community of slam poetry and spoken word, which is this like, you know, big, huge community of writers from all over the globe, particularly the US. So we get people that come from all over the world to the National Poetry Slam. Um, but particularly in the South, we have this big competition called the Southern Pride National Poetry Slam. And so it's just like nationals, but it's just with Southern poets. And that's my first introduction into the South. So I was super lucky when I when my husband in college, he introduced me to that. And then I went every year to the National Poetry Slam and the women of the world. And then when I went to the Southern Pride, I was like, whoa, this is completely different. We're friends, you know, we're sitting around the table eating, people are encouraging each other. Um, and so the publishing world for me was like, I was living in two different worlds because I was a professor in academia, but at the same time, I was a part of this beautiful, familiar, down home, you know, down to earth, really friendly community of poets that were there to encourage you and cheer you on. So it's almost like I was living in like <laughs> two different worlds, if you will, like academia and then slam poetry at the same time. Um, so I've just been lucky. And then when I got out of academia, I built a community of other, other Southern poets on social media as well. And that has been um, just like a lifesaver because I've met so many like amazing friends in in the South and outside of the South, yeah. outside of the South. So yeah. Who are some of those writers? There's some that you want to uh, name and. Yeah, so I can give you give y'all a list. Um, so some of the writers <laughs> that are like crucial that you have to look up are 
Um, his name is Dasan Ahanu. So he is my mentor. He is the coach of the Bull City Slam team. Um, if you don't already know the illustrious and famous Jericho Brown, he is a award-winning famous black Southern uh, poet. Ada Limon, who is um, also in the South, was my professor. She's an, a national book award-winning uh, author. Uh, Felita Hicks, who edited my book. Um, she is phenomenal, um, or they are phenomenal. They're, they're a queer writer uh, in the South as well. And the list just goes on and on. Um, Sierra Freeman and Kamon Felix. And I've just been been blessed to be in the company with so many like powerhouses uh, that you have to read because their work is just unlike any other uh, other and stellar. Um, so yeah, yeah, the list goes on. I'll have to like send you a, a bunch of names to look up and read. <laughs> well, so, well, with the show notes, you know, the listeners, the show notes, we will pop some definitely in there. And some names will be familiar yeah. without a doubt, Ada Limon. There's certainly a, um, can we call it an ancestral quality or, or something that bears, you know, you, you spoke about ancestors, haven't you? Well, let, let's go to that. It's, there's something you said yeah. with Rachel Eliza Griffiths and you said, um, when you came to the South, you you said, this is what my ancestors were talking yeah. about. Um, so I don't know if you want to elaborate a bit on what that might sure. be. Sure, yeah. So when I came to the South, you know, when you, whether you have parents or grandparents that, that grew up in the South or not, everyone that is a, you know, a citizen of America knows about the history of um, slavery and the migration of, you know, freed slaves, everybody, whether they want to believe it or not, everybody who is a person of color, our ancestors migrated from the Southern region and then they migrated up to the, to the North. So that's how, you know, Black folks even got to the North. We started in the South, but we migrated. And so when you listen to your grandparents talk, all of them are talking about um, the experience of being othered and oppressed as a person who literally was not free, you know, uh, that didn't have any rights. And so when you're a 20 something or 18 year old coming to a city you've never been in before, and you listen to your ancestors talk about this, this lack of freedom, this lack of rights, this lack of respect and justice, and then you get to this city and you see it firsthand. You know, I experienced racism and other and in bigotry in college and in the city firsthand. And you get to a town where they like openly try to hide the fact that there was like a, a well-known coup d'etat that happened in that city where they murdered the black people and threw their bodies in the river. And so that's what my ancestors were talking about when they talk about the trauma um, and the you know, the, the, the violence that they experienced, it's still happening today. Um, and I felt it, I felt it when I was walking around in the town, you know, everybody that lives there says, there's something weird about the town. Well, that's what they mean, <laughs> that it's, it's still, it still permeates that, that um, injustice and that bigotry still permeates the town. And you can, people can feel it. Like people of all colors talk about it. They're like, something's strange with this town. And so that's what my ancestors were talking about. But the other thing that I told Rachel Eliza was that I had to call upon my ancestors to get through, to make it. They, I had to, yes. you know, 
pray to them to help me survive, I guess you could say, because I needed their, their guidance. So, yeah. Well, this is what I find really interesting because it almost seems like you are, and it ties into those themes of, of ghosts uh, and, you know, kind of ghosts of our ancestors and, and also experiences or people or voices that haven't, you know, they haven't gone away. They are still sort of around, you know, haunting, uh, but haunting, you know, I guess in a sort of positive sense to kind of impart a message. But um, I feel like you are sort of asking writers sometimes you are asking kind of people um i mean in, in mermaids and ghost ships you you explicitly say ask Aloda equiano and he will tell the bloodline scattered um wondered who do you have in mind when you're writing your poems are you kind of are you kind of projecting back are you projecting forward or is it is it, is it does it not cross you know does it not come in it's kind of more of a personal experience yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I think that I'm looking good. back and forward. I think <laughs> I think that I'm on several of these poems, I am calling back to history. On several of these, I am com in communication with like current writers that I want to talk to. And then on a few of these, if you look about like reclaiming our phenomenal bones, that poem, I feel like that and American made and several others where I'm like speaking to almost like a younger generation, I think I'm talking to the future. So I think in my book, I'm in conversation with like the past, the present and the future. Um, because some of these are a retelling of history. Some of it's like, here's what's happening today now. And then some of it's like, hey, young girl, like don't make the same mistakes that I made. And as you said, it's like a warning warning <laughs> be be cautious young girl that's going to come up behind me almost like a letter to my future daughter if you will you know what i mean but yeah totally of course i empathize with um you know i don't have kids uh yet and i'd like to think someday i do but um <laughs> i guess i guess as a, 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 a slam poet um uh, performance poet, you you are you would be kind of were there any anxieties then in writing these that you would lose perhaps some kind of platform? You you won't you weren't being as loud for want of better word, or your message wouldn't be imparted in such a, a powerful way, or I wouldn't say that I was worried. I would say that as someone who, as we talked about earlier, lives in both worlds, I am both an academic page poet and I'm a performer. So I think that I wasn't worried because I had the best professors that you can have, you know, having Claudia Rankin and Anna Limon as your professors and the people that like were my thesis advisors that like checked, this is an amazing book, like for them to put their stamp of approval on it and for them to be the people that helped me craft it on the page. I wasn't worried, but your question is so great because one thing that I was, I guess, concerned about was the fact that people always say that my poems beg to be read aloud. And so there's some things that get lost in translation when you, you know, if you talk about like this poem that I have, that's basically like a list of words to never say on like the third page outside the canon or like body apology, you see it on the page and it's laid out really cool. And it's, it's, it's really cool form. But those poems don't really come to life until you actually hear me read them. And so, yeah, several of these need to have life breathed into them. They need that voice behind them for people to understand 
the the pain and the passion behind it um, or for them to fully like get what I'm talking about. Sometimes they need me to say it aloud. And so I think you're right. That was a concern that I had. But the cool thing about technology <laughs> is that like, I know that that opens me up to so many things. I've, I've get, gotten people requested that I do like an audiobook version. I've gotten folks that said like, you know, we'd love for this to be like a CD um, or some type of like, um, take all these poems and make them into a performance oration. So that's the cool thing about technology is I can re record these poems. I can put them on Instagram. I can make videos. There's so much that I can do with these pieces. They don't just have to like live on the page, you know? Collaring our native tongues. Heard we rattle in the walls, small and rat-tailed rumbles. People ignore, they swear we're just the pipes, creaks in the floorboards. Our native tongues crawl out of tight spaces and tumble into silent cracks. We scavenge for substance but settle for the need to be heard. Search for the words you try to exterminate. We know the social norms set for us are a trap. Our dirt road desert stories are called trifle, fleeting. When in the dark, you consider us rodent, hard to get rid of. You cannot lure us with moldy scraps. We know how to sniff out the wrist before appearing full face. Our accents are not welcome here. Presence not loud enough to be heard over your king's English. We like being quiet. That means you must listen closer. But sometimes we'd like to be domesticated. Taken outside for a walk or to the park to play catch. We'd like to be pet and praised for our silence and how well we obeyed. Mad Blackbird. The cage bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. Maya Angelou, Caged Bird. A woman walked up to me and told me I was beautiful. Eyes stark and mesmerized started to lift her hand and lean in to touch my feather the crest of my head, my tail. Gawking, she called her other friends over to pet and view my exotic, my natural. And if I had swatted her away, screamed and pushed her, I would have been called beast, wild animal, untamed. How do you cope when they say, can I touch it? It's so wide, so full, look, so big, can I keep her? When everyone tells you to hide your true self but is wearing the features they made you hate, your body doesn't know whether to change its stripes or break the bars and run. It's hard to look in the mirror to not hear their voices. You'd be prettier if you bleached, snipped a wing or two, trimmed the fat, if your squawk wasn't so riotous. I am losing myself. Been here so long, this cage feels like a home, more like a place to rest under than escape. The more they tell you to change, the harder it is to remember what you loved about yourself in the first place. My long neck, full beak, plumage like ink. This beautiful mahogany tail that spans majestic, crooked appendix that keeps on waving. Starting the reading the collection, um, the first poem is Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat. You know, it's written in verse. Uh, it pays attention to, you know, rhyme and meter. 
Um, and it's quite a long poem and it's in mostly in tercets, isn't it? And you kind of think that you are kind of getting into a poetry that is kind of paying attention to rhyme and meter. But then body apology isn't that, and you really play around, you really play around with the space on the page. But you know, arguably you say you could do that in something like Ghost in the Black Girl's Throat, but more obviously in body apology. And then outside the canon, words to never use the third poem. Yeah, it's a list, numbered list of words we shouldn't use. And then Southern Foreclosures. Um, this was a, a fantastic poem, actually. I think that I am speaking in a tradition of other Black and BIPOC writers who have all used the body as a vehicle to say something larger about um, social justice and human rights and the way we um, treat and manipulate the body. And so I think that it's kind of cool that I am in the legacy of so many other writers that have come before me that have used the different parts of the body as a metaphor to say something larger. And so that's what I attempted to do, specifically with the throat. You know, we're talking about like the voiceless and oppression. Uh, and I think, you know, me specifically that had like an issue with her throat. So I think you're talking about literal uh, traumas that are going on, but also I think, you know, if we go back to Tony and Lucille and Gwendolyn and Alice Walker and James Baldwin, oftentimes they are using the body parts to speak to how they've been treated like less than a human, which I think is like a brilliant way to speak to that by talk like taking the, the pieces of the body apart almost, which becomes this whole other metaphor about them being like separated and split in two. Uh, if you read like Nikki Finney, the Southern writer, Nikki Finney, who's phenomenal, I'll add her to the list. Um, she talks a lot about the body parts um, and being a, a person of Southern tradition uh, and why that's so important because our bodies were literally auctioned off in slavery, you know? So like, I think that's what I find fascinating, but also I think, yeah, I'm also in a like contemporary tradition as well with other writers that I think, especially folks of color, as we talk about like current events that are happening, like the violence against the black body. I think that's why body is so important to keep bringing up because the violence against our bodies keeps happening. And so, yeah, I, I, I really like what I've done in this collection as a really, I hope it was effective. What I've tried to do about almost like the separation or like the piecing apart of the body that I try to show in the book um, as like a metaphor for how I felt when I got to the South. So yeah, that's what I was attempting to do. Hopefully I was successful in doing it. So yeah. I think you really successfully articulate um, an ex the embodied experience and ex articulate an embodied experience like we talked about the throat, um, but also it's not just about violence and things inflicted, it's about the beauty of the body as well. The kind of way you use metaphors in the collection. You use really bold metaphors um, and you're very com you seem very comfortable, you know, working on a metaphor and an image and having it as essential image and you're quite comfortable working around it. Um, and I thought there's a really interesting poem and a real one that I really enjoyed was Mad Black Bird. I just wondered before we go a bit more into that, if, if you could talk a bit more about the inspiration for it and how you put that poem together. 
So Mad Black Bird and Black Boy Painted as Butterfly actually are a part of um, a different project that I am a part of. Um, I was asked to be in uh, the Invisibility Project in North Carolina, which is the study of the event that I talk about in the book, uh, the Wilmington 1898 Race Massacre. And so it's a poetry and dance project uh, that was turned into a documentary where I was the narrator and um, the writer on it, where I had to narrate all of the movement and the dance with poems. And so I wrote Mad Black Bird and Black Boy Painted as Butterfly um, for that uh, documentary and for that project. And really Mad Black Bird comes from, you know, I use the epigraph Maya Angelou's Cage Bird, um, but I wrote that without even really thinking about um, Maya Angelou at first. I wrote that because we have a scene in the project where the two dancers are putting together a skit that talks about othering and appropriation and oppression um, as like a black woman in a room full of other white women and this like Western ideal of like beauty, going back to kind of what you were saying and this like celebration of the black woman form, but also how the black woman body is also fetishized and exoticized as well. And the damaging effect that that has, you know, on young girls and, and, and adult women. And so that's really what, what, what inspired Mad Black Bird, the exoticizing of the Black female form. And then I thought about Cage Bird and Maya Angelou and how, as I said, like, I'm always in conversation with my ancestors. Like, Maya had already kind of talked about this subject, if you will, the idea of being trapped, you know, trapped in this Western ideal of like what it is to be beautiful. So it's kind of cool that I'm like speaking, speaking to her in a way through this poem. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an expert on Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou by any means, but it, it made me go to, um, I know it made me go to, I know why the cage bird sings. And I found it interesting yeah. how you weren't sort of conscious of that when you started out the poem, because in terms of this idea of finding a voice, and I'm just talking about kind of artistic voice here, um, there's that moment, and she also, I didn't know that she also moved from St. Louis, didn't she? She moved to down to Yeah, she did. Arkansas. Yep. She, te she teaches, well, she passed away, but she taught in my college, um, my other college down in Greensboro, North Carolina, the Winston-Salem area for many, 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 many years. So she's a Southern writer as well. There's that gorgeous moment where she writes about, she, she's asked to recite poetry, isn't she? She's asked oh, to yeah. repeat poetry. And it's this really yeah. bittersweet moment mm -hmm. where she finds her voice. And mm -hmm. I just felt, you know, there was these kind of, the way you talk, you know, you talk to your answers, as you, as you put it. And this is, I think, the, one of the achievements of the collection is that it must be quite difficult to avoid not referencing the fact you are, you are finding your voice, you know, I mean, you are emerging into the world as a writer. Do you, I don't know if that's, it avoids those kind of debates about kind of, being conscious of your own kind of craft that's such a good oh my goodness you're making me think about so many things <laughs> I didn't even think about the fact that she took a vow of silence oh my gosh and she yeah she talks a lot about her finding her voice again and I you know that's such a good parallel that like with this being my first full link you know I have a book before this that was a small chat book but I was finding my vo voice through yeah, this book and so that's such a cool um 
comparison that you found between kind of like her finding her voice again. She, she didn't speak for what, like a decade or she took a really long time to not talk um, after she was uh, the victim of a, a sexual assault and then decided to speak again. So that's really cool. I'm gonna have to write about that. I might write an essay about that, <laughs> about that parallel of like finding your voice uh, after like having experienced trauma in that way. And yeah, thank you for, for uh, bringing that parallel to like, cause that's super cool, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to impose that reading on you by any means. Um, but it, it, there were some chimes in there that because I want to talk about the sound of the poems as well, and I want to talk in terms of that idea of perhaps silence and having a voice. And there's a the word that I'm using here. This might not be what um, you think is right, but there was a kind of sort of rattling kind of quality to some of the poems, um, and it is a word you use explicitly in southern foreclosures. But some of the lines in that poem as well do kind of rattle in the way that um, kind of consonant sounds and the, the the sharp kind of T and the L sounds. Oh no, um, that was intentional. Um, Southern Foreclosures actually has been a poem that I've been working on for quite a while. A lot of intention went behind that poem and it's been edited down really um, in a concise brief way because this used to be a uh, performance piece I used to do that was called 10 Reasons I Will Never Call the South Home. And we really distilled it down, if you can see, to just like quick little flat, almost like I wanted it to be like a movie, like a documentary. I wanted it to be just like quick flashes of images. And that's why you get these, these consonant sounds of like rattle. Like I just wanted words that were big and bold that would flash in your mind. And because I had a short amount of time, if you think about like documentary or a quick little like reel on Instagram you only have like 60 seconds so I, in my mind I said I have you know 60 seconds to give them a picture of what it was like when I first got to the south and then I want to call back to historical events with just a flash of a graphic image uh, and a visceral feeling of what it's like in my gut to be here uh, and not feel welcome so that's why you get those words like tarred and feathered and gruesome and fertilizer, like these really strong images, because I needed you to paint that picture in your mind in a very quick, short amount of time. Tarred, feathered, um, really harsh kind, not, I wouldn't say harsh, but just quite, kind of like stubbed sounds, you know, it ends and it's an X and it, but it does, yeah. you use, I want to notice as well is that you use enjambement a lot. Your lines run on quite a lot as well. So it's not necessarily, um, tying into the sense of you know you're not it's not an you're not stopping I guess in a way so perhaps that is perhaps that's kind of going into that kind of montage kind of visual image you have in your mind constructs but is that because is this something that you have quite a lot when you're building posts because you are very imagistic you use images a lot this kind of yeah sort of vignettic kind of montage uh, idea of a, of a poem or yeah, I started out as a film major um, and my oh. sister works in film. And I think that I was very much so, you know, I grew up on movies. I always say that me and my mom were like the mom and daughter of Gilmore Girls. We were obsessed with movies. <laughs> we And so I think my brain naturally works that way also because I do write stories and fiction. I think my brain wants you to get it on an imagistic level first and I want you to paint the picture because I think 
you seeing the picture through my eyes is the best way for you to empathize with how I feel in my gut. And so for me, that's why that was so important. Cause if you can see it and you can be like, whoa, wow, these bodies being tarred and feathered and hung and this is crazy. Then you can start to feel how wild it feels to be in my body, you know, my experience and there'll be empathy and then empathy leads to change. And so that was really my, um, my goal, my hope. Um, for people to really like see those flashing images with me. But I do think, I think my love of movies and, and story and TV and film really uh, plays a part in the way that I tell my, uh, write my poems. Because I've, I've spoken to poets and writers who's, you know, mm. been very much influenced by uh, some of the feelings experienced when they were watching kind of childhood films. Mm -hmm. Jen Collier, who I've had on the podcast, she spoke a lot about like labyrinth, the film, the film Labyrinth and the kind of terror that felt. And some of the morals that were imparted at a young age, you know, when she grew older that she realized actually these aren't, these are a bit outdated. So is, is that something that you've experienced? And is there something, are you working against something within that or? I think for me, I will tie it back into my love of like wholesome shows like Gilmore. I think for me, because I did have this like double life growing up of like, being a survivor of trauma but not knowing that until I got older um and not like coming to grips with that until I got older and like exploring parts of my identity and not doing that until I got older I think I am pushing against a lot of this like um I don't know if you've ever seen the movie like Pleasantville but when I was uh this like um it's an American film where everybody just has like a white fence and a picket, you know, uh, a picket fence and a white house with shutters sure. and a dog and a kid, you know? And I think in my book, I talk a lot about family. And so I think for me, I, I had a double life because me and my mom had this like idyllic relationship. And then I had a not so good relationship with my father figure. And then, you know, not so good relationship with my body at the time. And like, was the object of a lot of like older man affection and was like weird and I felt icky. And so like, I think for me being much, my maturation process was like this weird dichotomy of like having this really great relationship. I was like the baby and was spoiled and got to do whatever I want to do and have this great life. But then also I had to grapple with a lot of that trauma too. So I think when I write my poems, I'm trying to push against what it is to have this like idyllic life, this like what it, what is it? What, when people say like, I had a normal upbringing, what is normal? You know, what is idyllic? What is perfection? Um, as someone who struggles with perfectionism, I think that that's what I'm pushing against this idea that I had to, in order for me to look back and for it to be good memories, it had to be perfect. And I don't think that that's healthy. And so I think that's what I'm really pushing against. And then I think, you know, as we talk about like the images that I was shown growing up, there were only very few you know, black shows or shows of like girls and, and families of color. And again, the Cosby show, you know, these famous shows like Cosby show, Family Matters, yeah. all these shows are like this perfect idyllic view of what it's like, you know, to be in a black family. None of them show the real aspect of what it is, you know, the hard, um, the comp, I wouldn't say hard, but I would say the complicated, complex, um, multidimensional, um, ways in which we we live and so for me I think I was pushy against that because I didn't have that growing up I didn't have images of like complex families with like problems and trauma nobody talked about that and so for me I wanted to make sure that as we talked about before if my daughter were to read this book my future daughter I want her to like know the reality 
um, of living in the world and not like this perfect picture, this like fake image of like what it is uh, to be a young girl of color in the world. And, you know, I want her to see the beauty, but I want her to also know about, you know, the broken things as well. So yeah, I think I am pushing back against those things. I always think, what would it be like if one of my children read something that I'd written? What is, um, po- you know, is a nice positive image you have of kind of handing down your work and saying, look, this is kind of what your mother did. And I, um, you know, experience the things, I put them into a kind of positive experience, or is it a kind of, here's a way to sort of educate yourself about the world? I think it's here's how you educate, but also just to tie it up with what we were saying before, you don't have to sugarcoat things or be afraid. You know, I think for me, I don't think it has to be one or the other. I don't think your work that you pass down has to be either positive and sugary or horrific and graphic. I think that you, I think as a former teacher and somebody who's worked around kids and nonprofits for a long time, it was important for me as a leader and a mentor in all the, you know, work that I've done in the past the kids that I've tried to like mentor and help, I always try to instill upon them that the world is not black and white. As much as we want to make it black and white, it's not, it's not just ugly or beautiful. There's gray area in between, you know, um, you have to take the lightness with the darkness and there's, you know, some beautiful gray. And so for me, I want kids to know that that's important for them to not be so hardened by the horrible things or not be so naive with the beautiful sugary things that like you've got to understand that sometimes um, life is complex and I want that to be the message of my book, that it's okay to talk about the complex hard things and it's also okay to have joy and um, sit with that joy and be happy uh, even in the midst of, you know, that gray. Almost exercising the fear we have to talk about the complexity of life. If I were to put it in one sentence, I think that's what it would be. Kalisa Ray, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat is out now, published by Red Hen Press. Um, I look forward to seeing where you go next, and I hope you will join me again uh, in the future. But for now, thank you very much. Of course, thank you. This has been, oh my goodness, this has been a pleasure. So good talking to you, Liam. My thanks to Kalisa for joining me today, and of course, my thanks to you for listening as well. Now, if you'd like to follow the Rippling Pages podcast on either Twitter or Instagram, you can do so via at rippling underscore pages. That's at rippling underscore pages. And that's both for Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to get in touch, please do so at ripplingpagespod at gmail.com. Otherwise, until next time, where I'm going to be joined by Jeff Chong as he talks to me about his new novel, Hashtag Good Guy with a Good one.